Our text this morning comes to us from Daniel chapter 6. As last week, we weren't able to make it all the way through Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter just so we get the whole flow and understand what's all going on. So with that, Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the, the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house when he, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then... At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, 
he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent, an, sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of, his, out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion, and of his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. As you sit down, would you please bow your heads in prayer? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to gather here this morning to meet with you and that you have given us your word. We ask that as we, as we study your word, that you'd pour out your spirit upon us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're telling us in your word. We know that these are gifts of yours that only you can give, and so we ask for these gifts. We ask these not just for us, but for our children, that they would remember knowing and loving you from their youngest days. Dear Lord, I also pray that you'd help me to preach this text as it ought to be preached. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So we now come to the close of the first half of Daniel, the autobiographical section of Daniel. And this is one of those stories that we can be super familiar with, right? After all, I think the VeggieTales did a number on this. I think just about every single storybook Bible has to have this in there. And if you see any kind of animated Bible stories, this will always be within the library or repertoire. But I think that within that, the sense that we're familiar with this, that we already understand all of this text, that we know all there is to know about this, that there's a danger within that. That when we think that there's nothing more than kind of what meets the eye or that we've heard it all before, that, that can cause us to kind of overlook the text, to not do justice to the text, not dive in to see what the text is telling us. So this morning, rather than rehashing the usual lines about Daniel 6, which almost always in our modern day turn to, into a kind of a dare to be a Daniel, rather what I want to do this morning is to look at this text with new eyes, so to speak. Eyes that aren't shaped entirely by our time and place in history as Christians living in the 21st century with all of our late modern assumptions. Rather, what I want to do is to try to look at this text as, our, as the original audience would have seen this. As our brothers and sisters understood this text and relied on this text to hold them in the midst of great trouble all throughout church history. So 
And then with that understanding, to help this text shape the way that we see the world around us today and the way we live our lives in our current moment. So with that understanding, um, let's kind of dive in. And to accomplish our goals within this um, text, we're, the sermon's going to look a little bit different than it sometimes has in the past. So I'm also looking for a little bit of feedback. So let me know what you think. If you think this was helpful, please let me know. If you think, like, never, ever do this again or this style again, let me know that as well. So as we go through this passage, there are two things I want to highlight. First of all, the judgment in this passage. And second of all, that this is God's world. We're asking the question of what kind of world is this? What kind of a world do we find ourselves in? With the big idea this morning being that God calls his people to be faithful despite the situation that his people may find themselves in because Yahweh is the God of history, that he is thoroughly in control. So seeing as how we kind of broke this, uh, this text up into two sermons, let's kind of do a recap of where we were at last week. So first of all, we saw that Darius, as the new ruler of Babylon, was trying to set up a system of smooth government. He planned to appoint rulers or satraps, 120 of them, over the whole empire. And remember, this was an empire that stretched all the way from the borders of Greece to the borders of India. So this was like a massive area. And a little bit much for just one guy to simply hold on to or to think that he could micromanage everything. So Darius, being a wise ruler, went, I need some help. I need some people to oversee this. I need some managers to help me with this. So he sets up 120 uh, satraps over districts to answer to three higher officials. And those three were then to answer to him. Right? So we kind of see a pyramid happening here. Now, Daniel was originally one of those three. Until Daniel was so successful that Darius decided, you know what, I don't actually need these three. I don't need these three mid-level guys. I can just have Daniel. After all, Daniel's proven that he's so efficient, that Daniel is so trustworthy and so faithful that he can entrust the entire empire into him as kind of his second in command. And part of the reason for that was, was Daniel's character. And that was one of the things that we looked at last week. Now, this naturally leads to the jealousy on the part of the different satraps, the other officials. After all, why should the top job go to someone who wasn't even a Babylonian? Someone who didn't even worship their gods. After all, how could Daniel be trusted with the kingdom if he wasn't even a good citizen? Because at that time, if you didn't worship the gods of the nation, if you didn't worship just like everybody else, it meant that you were a bad citizen. You weren't, your loyalty was always kind of in question. How could Daniel be trusted with king if he wasn't a good citizen? That's what they thought. So seeking to get dirt or an upper hand on Daniel, they couldn't find anything. Now let's just take a moment to reflect on that. How remarkable that is if they're looking for somebody who is essentially the second in command, but you can't find anything he's done wrong, either in his job performance or in his character. Now, Imagine that we had a politician, like that we had politicians like that, right? Somebody who doesn't have any scandals in their private life or who manages their affairs so well, that there's no abuse of power, that they're not trying to curry favor for themselves. Sorry, I'm just kind of reminiscing of the fact, a little bit jealous in light of, you know, the past couple of weeks' news. Now, the wicked officials then made a rule that would have forced 
Daniel to be in disobedience to his God. They, they recognized that the only way they could trip Daniel up was by finding some way to, to plant a wedge between Daniel and his God, recognizing that his character meant that he would always be faithful to his ultimate allegiance, which was to his God. So they went, what can we do? So uh, they brought in a rule to which um, Darius thought was a means of trying to unite the empire under his authority. Right? Darius, he'd just taken over this, the Babylonian Empire. He was trying to figure out how can I consolidate control of the empire? How can I limit rebellions? How can I limit people rising up against him? So the rule was that for 30 days, if you wanted to petition or pray to your God, you had to do it through Darius. And as we saw last week from Daniel chapter 5, from the historical record, that uh, Belteshazzar, he took all the different gods of all the conquered people that were in his empire, he brought them all to Babylon in a means of trying to uh, throw one big festival to call out to any god who would listen to come and save him. So all the different idols, all the different implements of worship, everything that was required in order to faithfully serve their gods was already present in Babylon. So the officials went, you know what? If everybody has to come to you, everybody has to go through you to reach their god, that's a way of ingratiating everybody to you. That's a way of having everybody submit to you. Now to Darius, this seemed as a sly political maneuver. However, to Daniel, that was an un unthinkable thing. That was something that he could not abide by. So last week, we looked at Daniel's character and saw that his public courage grew out of his lifelong faithfulness to God. His being grounded in the scriptures, in prayer, and living life in godly community. Something that we see all throughout the book of Daniel so far. And then we looked at the nature of prayer. Of how this royal edict was a usurpation of power. It was a giant power play. It was an attempt to get everybody to submit to Darius. And that Daniel's rebellion was a refusal to acknowledge anyone but his God. It was a refusal to acknowledge that there was anyone above his God. Because in prayer, we're appealing to the highest authority. Therefore, whenever we pray for our leaders, what we're seeing is that even though you might be a prime minister, you might be the president, you might be the premier, you might even be the Caesar of Rome, you might be the king of Babylon or of Persia, but we're saying you might have this position here, but there's someone higher than you. There's someone of greater authority than you. Hence, this is why we should pray for our leaders. Not only because we're appealing to, to God to intervene to the situation, but it's also a way to remind our hearts that even those people that we look at or those people that would trouble us, that they are under a higher authority, even if their conduct doesn't reflect that. A famous example of this is actually of St. Athan Athanasius. When he ended up being at odds with the emperor, the emperor of Rome, the emperor was looking at seeking him to imprison him or to do worse. People kind of went up to him and went to Athanasius like, how were you so calm? And Athanasius' response was, the emperor, yeah, he's but a little cloud. He's like that like cloud far off in the distance. Yeah, he can kind of, you know, thunder and rain and do his worst, but he too shall pass because there's someone higher than him. Now all of this catches us up to verse 11 where we see the men are waiting to spring their trap. Notice that we see the guys camped out under Daniel's window. 
they're listening in. You can kind of almost envision them as kind of having their ears cranked up, trying to be, trying to get the dirt, so to speak. And then they run to Darius. One thing for us to notice is that God doesn't intervene here. Surely God could have just as easily closed the jealous official's eyes and ears, just as easily as he later closed the mouths of the lions, so that Daniel, an elderly man at this point, would have been spared the entirety of the trouble of this ordeal. Now, God could have easily done that, but that wasn't God's plan to save Daniel from the trial. Rather, it was God's plan to save Daniel through the trial. And this is a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. Just as was the, earlier the case with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there, were, there, there was a lesson uh, that Daniel, for those around him, would learn. <clears throat> that could, there were lessons that God has for us to learn. Not by taking us out of trials or by taking us out of um, hard situations, but those are lessons that we learn only by going through, through the furnace, by going through the den of lions. And this is important for us to understand because God isn't just committed to our comfort. God isn't committed to making our path through life smooth as if he were the cosmic butler. However, God is committed to sanctifying us and demonstrating his own glory in and through us. And that very often means that we will be subject, that us as earthen vessels will be subject to pressures that would shatter us in any ordinary circumstance. Were it not for that his grace is sufficient. Remember St. Paul in 2 Corinthians when he ends up recognizing that God's grace is sufficient when he writes of that, saying, so very often God will take us into the eye of the storm to show us that he is the storm's master and that he can make our fragile earthen vessels float safely through to the other side. That God's wonderful plan for us is to sanctify us for our good and his glory. After all, think of the disciples in the storms with Jesus. Jesus didn't take them out of the storm. They didn't just avoid the storm. They didn't just wait to go sailing the next day or go from somewhere else. Rather, Jesus carried them through to the other side to show them that he was the Lord even of the storm. And all of this is to show them and us, the disciples then and us now as his disciples today, that Jesus will likewise take us through the storms of life as he is Lord even of the chaos that we see all around us. So for us, it's important to remember that even in hard circumstances, God hasn't abandoned you, but he will carry you through. This then leads us to uh, the officials that come before Darius. They end up appealing to Darius saying, look, this is what Daniel's doing. Daniel's not following the rules. They're kind of like the, uh, the tattletale. For those of you who had siblings growing up or had uh, someone in school who was that kind of the tattletale going running it automatically to, you know, parents or to teachers going, but look at what they're doing. That's exactly what these officials are doing. They're the snitches. And this then leads to Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, despite Darius's best efforts to save him, because of the law of the Medes and Persians, as the text mentions over and over and over again, it wasn't meant to be changed. So then as a side note, um, when we think of lions and lion's dens, we kind of become tempted to think they're kind of like for us at the zoo, right? We go to the zoo, we see the lions once in a while, the lion will catch a bird or something like that. They usually don't show the feeding of the lions in front of people as far as I'm aware. But that wasn't the case here. 
These lions weren't well-fed and bored. These lions were an object of state terror. They were a tool of terror. They were to remind the people that at any time, like the lion's den was usually, it wasn't off someplace in the wilderness, like way outside of camp, way outside the city. Rather, this was something that was kept in the city, and it was a means by reminding the people that at any time, you could be thrown alive to creatures that would devour you. And I don't know how many of you guys have been around cats or seen cats hunt. Sometimes that death is quick, but not always. So this was a means by enforcing that at any time, you could be thrown in there. At any time, if you fell uh, on the wrong side of the officials, that could be you. And now, Daniel's abandoned and left to be killed. He's, as the text goes on, he's thrown in there. But as he's thrown in there, the narrative actually shifts, as, uh, shifts to Darius. Where in verse 18 it says, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here we're told that King Darius, a man who was one of the most powerful men at this time, probably the most powerful man at the time, a man who had all the diversions available to himself, anything that you could imagine the ancient world had to offer, he had at his disposal. And yet he wasn't able to enjoy any of that. And this is contrasted with Daniel, who on the other hand, had a very different kind of night, right? This is an old man at this point. Most likely he's in his um, 70s or 80s. Thrown to a, a lion's den, somewhere where there wasn't like a nice comfy bed that he probably had at home. Completely without the comforts of life. Daniel had nothing but the company of an angel and the knowledge that he was blameless before his God with him in this trial. Yet, he seemed to have a far more peaceful night. This is meant to show us that the true peace doesn't, true peace doesn't come from comforts and possessions that we can accumulate for ourselves, right? Our true peace doesn't come from all the stuff we can have, whether it be, you know, that nice fancy couch or the big screen TV or having subscriptions to all the different streaming sites, that that isn't where your true peace comes from. That isn't how, what's truly able to actually calm your heart. Rather, true peace comes from the presence and favor of God in our lives. And I think in our current day and age, it's all too easy for us to forget that. After all, how many of us think, hey, if I just had that one more thing, that one more uh, gizmo, gadget, or comfort in life, I'd have it made. I could just relax just that little bit easier. But this text shows us that that's not the case. Rather, our true peace comes from knowing the presence and favor of God in our lives. Now, before we move on, um, the next day, we see that as Darius uh, comes out, where is it? Then at the at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. The common response of the day. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Now let's come and take a look at Daniel's response. That even though Daniel was condemned according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, God, the heavenly judge, declared Daniel not guilty 
overturned their death sentence upon him. The shutting of the lion's mouths served an exclamation mark on God's rebuke of the judgment of this pagan king. It was a way, it was a way for uh, God to declare, I've overturned your judgment and the shutting of the lion's mouths, it's irrefutable proof that God has intervened. After all, when at the time you throw someone into the lion's den, uh, they didn't survive the night. But this is God saying, your law, it's secondary to mine. That God is saying, he's above it, and he's rendered Daniel to be not guilty. Now, this is obviously meant to be a contrast with the judgment upon Daniel's accusers. Now, if these seems harsh to us, right, that uh, not just the accusers, but also their whole families were thrown in, this was a uh, common fair judgment in the ancient world. So, for example, Josephus will, uh, will say that if you make a false accusation against somebody, then that judgment that you sought for them, you'd end up having to face. It was a way of limiting false accusations and crimes. Um, Josephus would also say the reason why we'd have um, whole families being then thrown into the judgment as that was a way of kind of limiting revenge. So for example, as a way of uh, ensuring that, for example, if someone's father was killed, it wasn't like the old Western stories where then the sons sought revenge. And we can also see this found in the book of Deuteronomy. But what happens when the accusers are thrown in? As the text says, and, they were, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That the judgment was immediate for them. Which brings to how should we view Daniel's deliverance? Is, there, is this something that all Christians should expect? Because if so, what about the thousands who have been martyred throughout history? Who weren't delivered from the fires, or the mouths of wild beasts, or the sword or the bullet? Something that goes on to this day. Are they any less faithful? What does the, this passage of deliverance say to them? I think that for us, um, <clears throat> this is to make sense of, uh, in order to make sense of this, we need to see Daniel not as a prescription for how every single situation will turn out, but rather to see, um, to understand that we are to be faithful like Daniel, but in Daniel, God is also foresh foreshadowing in history the final verdict that he'll re render on all believers, no matter what may happen to us here and now. Daniel went through the lion's den and emerged safely on the other side because God had found him not guilty. That the lions acted as God's agent, agents of judgment. That they didn't harm him. However, the unbelievers who plotted against Daniel were crushed under God's judgment. This points us to how Jesus is the fulfillment of what Daniel 6 is pointing to. I like how Ian uh, Duggard puts it. Like Daniel... Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies and brought before the ruler, before ruler Pontius Pilate, who sought unsuccessfully to deliver him from his fate, before handing him over to a violent death. Like Jesus, like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die, and his body was placed into a sealed pit so that his situation could not be changed by human intervention. Jesus' trial went even deeper than Daniel's, however. He did not merely suffer the threat of death. He went down to death itself. Although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty ones. There was no angel to comfort him with the presence of God in the pit. On the contrary, he was left in the blackness utterly alone, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away the stone. Yet Jesus, ex Jesus experienced 
was itself a foreshadowing of that final judgment, a declaration ahead of time of the verdict of the heavenly judge. Jesus died for our sins, not his own. And so death had no ultimate power over him as he was a truly innocent man. Jesus did not remain in the grip of the tomb. God raised him from the dead precisely because God the heavenly judge found him not guilty. What is even more, when Jesus emerged alive from the tomb at daybreak on the, on the first Easter Sunday, he brought with him God's stamp of acquittal, not only on himself, but on all who are joined by faith to him. When Dan came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. No one else was saved by God's deliverance of him. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out ahead of a mighty company of people who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive the same verdict of the heavenly judge as he did, for his righteousness is counted as theirs. Because of the work of Christ on behalf of his people, God says, not guilty, you may go free. Now we too can find favor with God through the cross of Christ. This is how Daniel points forward to this. That the people that, God re- that Jesus redeemed through his death and resurrection are not super believers like Daniel. The point of Daniel isn't that we need to accomplish some type of a great thing. Most of us are ordinary sinners. Most of us, if we're being honest, and we look at our own lives, we're not like Daniel. Our lives aren't always measured by faithfulness um, as far as lives marked by consistent habits of prayer. After all, the text mentions that Daniel prayed three times a day. I think of him being generous. That doesn't always describe us, myself included. There are times where just the busyness of life, we can kind of feel, I don't have time, or it can kind of, we can be drawn to our own comforts rather than to say, I'm going to open up my Bible or I'm going to bow down in prayer. Most of us, we can cave at times to the pressures of the world around us. After all, who here hasn't had a time when, for example, due to peer pressure from friends or uh, thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal. Surely I can just repent of this later on or surely God doesn't view this as such a big deal. We can kind of bow. Now, from an earthly perspective, it may not seem um, that God's always with us, but he is. What kind of a reward is this for Christ's suffering. Yet Jesus does not hesitate to call us beautiful. Jesus doesn't hesitate to lay down his life for us, his people. Even someone deeply sinful can be found beautiful and accepted and perfectly holy because God sees the end of the process, the glorious church that he will present to himself without flaw or wrinkle. Our salvation doesn't rest in our ability to dare to be a Daniel or to simply to say, I'm faithful. I can, I can withstand all the pressures of the world around us. But solely on Christ's perfect obedience in our place. In the, midst, in the midst of the world's trials and tribulations, that is where our peace and rest come from. In the world to come, that will be our glory. That even though in this life we will, we will suffer trials and tribulations, we're not promised that we'll always have a perfect outcome. We'll always have that end of the road that we might be seeking or the outcome to every circumstance being as we might always hope it to be. But the day points us forward to Jesus, to a not guilty verdict, 
that God will vindicate his people. And the theme that we have seen so often in uh, the first six, first six chapters is the challenge of the pagan empire. The challenge of what does it look like to live as Christians, to live as God's people in God's world, recognizing that there's other empires that seek our allegiance and our obedience. This produces risk and suffering on the part of the people of God. We can look at Christians in ancient Rome. We can look at Daniel in Babylon. We can look at even Christians around the world today. And I'd argue most likely very shortly also here in Canada. They understood we are to understand there's suffering that will come with being a Christian. But that God renders us not guilty. But the, that God would be with them and that he'd vindicate them. Either in our current circumstances or in the final judgment to come. And that's how this text was understood both before Jesus' time by the original audience. That's how it was understood by the Maccabees. That they're called to be faithful and that God will vindicate them either in the here and now or in the life to come. That's how it was understood by the Maccabees. That's how it was understood by those in Jesus' day. It's also how it was understood by our brothers and sisters in, their, in the early church and throughout church history. They knew perfectly well that when empires rage and do their worst, that's like as Psalm 2 says, that he who dwells in the heavens laughs, that the Lord holds them in derision, that he will speak to them his wrath and terrify them their fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. <clears throat> that um, God's statement to the world is, just as Psalm 2 says, that this this text very much is seen as a narrative enactment or narrative elaboration of Psalm 2. That here's what the pagan empires do, right? They try to set up things. They try to call everybody to allegiance to them. They're trying to say that everybody needs, needs to fall in line and to be subject as this. Everybody needs to march lockstep. But here's what God's people are going to do. Because this is what God has done. But because God is in the heavens, that God looks down, he laughs at the many empires of this world trying to do what they do. That we, in this moment, that we mustn't compromise, but that we as God's people are called to work for the good of the world, just as we say, see Daniel doing, because God is the God of the whole world. And that just like they must trust God, we must trust God. Just like God vindicated Daniel, just like God has and will vindicate all of our brothers and sisters who were martyred or who suffered under the oppression of different governments and empires that God will, has and will vindicate them just like he will vindicate us, despite what we, what we may face, either here in this life or on that final judgment day. That our God is the God who is, as Psalm 2 says, he stands over the nations. He has set up his king on his holy hill. And that we're called to live in light of that. So with that, if you please bow your heads in prayer as we close. Our God and Father, we thank you that you do rule, you are sovereign, you are supreme, and that you've called us to be faithful in this life. That you are the judge of the whole world. That we all, without Christ, are without hope in the world. Dear Lord, I pray now that for our, for our nation, that you grant repentance. That for us, that you'd help us to be faithful. And dear Lord, help us to rest in the fact that you will not 
cause us to miss the storms, but you will carry us through them. And that no matter what the outcome may be, that you will vindicate us either here and now or in the life to come. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.